Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and this is the third part of our Mormons and Violence series. This is such a big topic. I think we could do an entire podcast on this topic. But as promised, I have Joe Geisner back for another. Um, if you haven't listened to the last episode, I would definitely recommend that because Joe covers a lot of the Missouri and Nauvoo period and the Council of 50. So, Joe, can you say hello? Hello, everyone, and hello, Lindsay. Now, Joe, you had a reference that you wanted to bring up from the last podcast. Do you want to cover that really quick? Sure. And, you know, I, I the best thing for us to do is probably link to it. But I do want, yeah, I want people to know in this, if they just want to start searching right away, is the culture of violence in Joseph Smith's Mormonism by D. Michael Quinn. It's in the October 2011 Sunstone issue. So, And this is really going to set up a lot of the things that we're talking about today. It talks a lot about the Nauvoo period, talks about this culture that we are trying to sort of dig into. So it's a perfect article and we encourage everybody to read it. Yeah, it's a great, it, it was, I remember when it came out and uh, it was the discussion among everyone. So yes. Yeah. Um, also, there's a good plug for Sunstone Magazine. If you are not a subscriber, since I work for Sunstone, this is uh, my conflict of interest coming out. Um, subscribe to Sunstone Magazine. It's great. Absolutely. And attend the symposiums. Um, you know, Lindsay has uh, done an amazing job with uh, Sunstone Symposium. I, To be honest with you, I was a tad bit concerned. There was that... Like Leonard Arrington was concerned about the uh, Mormon History Association graying. I was concerned about that with Sunstone. And now all of a sudden there's, um, I would say, uh, the majority of people attending Sunstone are, um, you know, uh, under 40 years old. It, it's fantastic to see this whole new generation coming up. And I attended my first Sunstone Symposium back in 1988. Uh, yeah, 1988, uh, in Concord, California. And uh, we were lucky enough to have Linda Silato come. She just had uh, Salamander published. So Sunstone is close to my heart, very close to my heart. Yeah, it's so much fun. And and this it's always the last weekend of July at the University of Utah, and everyone comes in from out of state. Joe comes in from California. Joe, are you going to come this summer? I'm hoping. That's my plan. So I, I know that Joe has developed his own little fan base from this podcast. And I'm telling you, if you can snag Joe Geisner for lunch at Sunstone, that's the table you want to sit at because he has the most interesting stories. Oh, <laughs> you're, you're way too kind. Thank you. I'm just going to, I'm going to tell people though, if you do snag Joe, you should buy him lunch because that's the polite thing to do. So oh, you're very kind. You're going to have a lot of lunch dates this summer. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's get into it, Joe. We just talked about the early Mormon period of violence, but now I want to start talking about some of the really gruesome, I would say larger level, larger scale, um, violent acts of Mormonism. And of course, when I talked about this in the first part, I talked about Gerard's theory, Rene Gerard's theory of mimetic violence. My theory that I'm positing is that Gerard says that you know, human beings have this animalistic tendency to um, reciprocate violence done and done to them. And so what they've developed over time is a sacrifice. 
And the sacrifice sort of takes care of that energy, whether it's a virgin sacrifice or an animal sacrifice or a Christian sacrifice with Jesus, that sort of alleviates this tension and lets people try to at least live in harmony. But you, we see blood atonement, and you brought this up in our last episode too. Um, blood atonement, the idea behind blood atonement says that there are some sins that not even Christ can can um, atone for. And what that does in Gerard's theory is removes a sacrifice. So there's really not an outlet for this violence. So I'm just sort of um, tentatively theorizing that perhaps this is why we see a lot more violence ramp up as blood atonement rhetoric gets so violent. Does that make sense, Joe? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's a great and great introduction to this. Thank you. Okay, so bring us in. Well, as I was, you know, alluding to earlier, um, the at Swords Point by Bill McKinnon, what I think of that is you got the theory in the Council of 50. Now you've got the implementation. In 1857, Young now has a fairly large standing army with his uh, Nauvoo Legion. By the way, that they, the, the militia that still exists in Utah during this period is still called the Nauvoo Legion. So what they did was they just carried that over. At the time, Daniel Wells, who was Young's um, counselor, and I, and I think in 1857, yeah, he was, he was still – he was second counselor. He didn't become first counselor until after Heber Kimball had passed away. But um, so Will Bagley found um, an August 16th, 1857 address that nobody outside of church archives had ever seen before. Will found this about 15 years ago or more. And I mean, the, the tenacity of Will Bagley is amazing. Uh, I've been told that um, by uh, church, at the time Church Archives, now Church History Library, employees that said to Will, you found everything that could be found. Um, that, that was how tenacious Will was. But anyway, he found this August 16, 1857, and Will allowed Bill McKinsor's point uh, one the first time, then Will then published it again in Innocent Blood. But, and then it was also published in The Complete Discourses of Brigham Young, um, which is a five volume um, work um, that was uh, published by uh, Smith Pettit Signature Books. Um, so Young, in that, you know, declares that the, that the Indians are going to kill the immigrants. Um, that he's tired, not only tired, he can't hold them back from doing it. He also talks about the, the Mormons should raise their sword to kill the, the U.S. Army. So this, you know, in August 16th, 1857, Young's giving an address like this. And and the events that then happen um, are... are uh, and we're not even going to, you know, we don't have time to even touch on so many of them. I mean, there's, um, you know, we we should probably link to Michael Marquardt's um, the murder of Jesse Thompson Hartley, which was done by Bill Hickman. So, so Bill Hickman, you know, murders Jesse Thompson Hartley because he sends a letter 
it telling what's going on in Utah. Um, you've got uh, immigrants, um, Goodell, uh, who writes letters to his family, you know, explaining how his male. And by the way, T Jesse Thompson Hartley. Uh, also, we know that the Mormons were stealing the the uh, letters and and going through them and if they had a problem with them they didn't let them leave the utah territory because jesse Thompson thompson's article that he sent to a secretary of war jefferson davis is in the brigham young collection on the internet for all of us now to see because of the wonderful people um at the church history library um and and so you know, we know this. And Goodall was saying how he knew that his letters were being opened. And people in the past were poo-pooing that until Mike Marquardt, you know, did this research, found the letter, and found that it was in the Brigham Man collection, undelivered. Um, you know, so these are the kinds of things that were going on. So anyway, um, what I wanted to let's step right, I mean, the worst of them, the worst which is the Mountain Meadows Massacre. I mean, there, there's nothing even to compare with the atrocity of that. And, and it, getting back to new documents, the, when, when the uh, church uh, allowed a book to be published called uh, Massacre at Mountain Meadows, they also allowed researchers in the church history department to seek two collections that had never been made available to researchers. Will Bagley had not seen them. The, the one is, is the Andrew Jensen collection. And the other is the David, David Morris collection. They were both published after the massacre at Mountain Meadows um, book came out about a year, I think after, and they were published, uh, I think by the same title actually called massacre at Mountain Meadows, the documents or something like that. And so those two collections are, are, are available. Um, it, just a real quick little thing about how that collection, the David Morris collection, he was a judge down in Southern Utah, I think in St. George. And, uh, Juanita Brooks used to go and bug him is the story. He used, she used to go and bug him uh, to see these affidavits that he would, he would allude to. And he would give different reasons. One, you know, that he was sick or his, he couldn't allow his family to hear what was being discussed or, or he had company or whatever. So Juanita Brooks never got to see them while he was like, he dies and one of her cousin's wives was David Morris's foster daughter. And she and her husband's, I guess, you know, we don't know actually how they came upon them. But in his office, they, they found these, these affidavits. And they spread them out on the table. And her husband, uh, Juanita Brooks's cousin, um, he was a hafen. And he said, uh, we can't look at these. We can't read these. We got to get these to the church. And so through a bunch of different things, talking to different attorney, he had a, he had a cousin there in St. George who was an attorney, talked to him. Then they talked to another attorney and they finally decided that the, the affidavits uh, were outside of the estate and that they could be turned over to the church. So they drove from St. George 
up to um, Salt Lake City to turn these affidavits over to the first president. Hafen, when she got to the church office building there, the church administration building, because there was no church office building, church administration building, she went in and Joseph Anderson was the only person that was there. And so there was no no first presidency members. Uh, Heber J. Grant, J. Reuben Clark, and, and uh, David O. McKay were not in the office. So she left the, the documents with Anderson, and he was secretary of the first presidency. And um, she left the office and got in the car. It was pouring down rain, by the way. Got in the car, and she started crying. And her husband said, what's the matter? And she goes, I, I didn't give them to the first presidency. I had to give them to Joseph Anderson. And he said, well, maybe you can find it. So I don't know. Again, it, it sort of convoluted how this all happened. But she gets out of the car, starts running through the uh, Temple Square there. And the, the church-owned uh, Hotel Utah at the time. And she runs into David O'Kay by the, church, uh, by the Hotel Utah. And um, she starts crying again to him, telling him about these documents. He said, don't worry, you did the right thing. When I get in the office, I'll look at him. So Juanita Brooks finds out that she had done this. So Juanita Brooks then drives up to Salt Lake City and, and keeps trying to meet with David M. K. She keeps being refused to see him. So she goes to George A. Smith, who had just become... Um, or president of the church, and she lays out what she's doing, you know, tries to convince him that she's the person to write the story of Mountain Meadows because um, she believes that Charles Kelly is also, which he did, he did work on a book, but that his book was ready to go and it would, it would hurt the Mormons. And so she felt that she could um, help the Mormons by telling it, you know, telling the story. And so George A. Smith listens to her, said he would look into it. And uh, as they're leaving, this is what George A. Smith says to her. I mean, talk about cryptic. He says to Juanita Brooks, he says, I hope that whatever you do in this matter, you will be happy about it, permanently happy. Juanita Brooks never did get to see the documents. Uh, she she never was allowed every time she went to, to Wait, David I, McKay. Let's back up. Permanently happy sounds ominous. Let's talk about yeah, that. I would say ominous is a good word for it. It was clear. It was clear that her eternal salvation was dependent upon uh, this matter, I guess is what you would say. That's so, so. interesting. So... This is another thing that I want to talk about that we really start getting eternal penalties and threats once the doctrine of polygamy is introduced. Up until this point, the Book of Mormon doesn't really, it has a lot of temporal threats. It talks a lot about um, prosperity and suffering in the land. But we really start to see this, this rhetoric of eternal threats ramp up when we see plural marriage introduced. Would you agree with that? Yes, definitely. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it just about this, just one last thing about this whole thing with Winnie Brooks. So, so she continued 
to go trying to see David O. McKay. He just kept deflecting her, wouldn't allow her to even be seen. You know, she just refused. She tried all kinds of things, had people write letters, different things. Um, she did meet with Joseph Anderson. Jo- Joseph Anderson's response was, J. Rubin Clark has gone through them and he thinks there's no uh, material in here that will help you in your studies. And that's it. <laughs> that was the basically the end of the discussion. So in these documents, and, and, and in some ways, I don't think it, Juanita Brooks really did, and, and, and Will Bagley would be the first to say that really nothing in the Morris or uh, the Jensen material would have changed what uh, Juanita Brooks wrote. Um, but because the other material, but other material did come to light later and, and he thinks that would have assisted. But, but one of the thing, one of the affidavits and it's by Nephi Johnson, Nephi Johnson left at least three different affidavits. Uh, and, and this one in the, the Morris collection chilled my blood. Let me just read you. It, it's a bit of a read, but, uh, but it's well worth it. This is from a man who was there. This is a man who actually ordered the murder of these people. So here's what he says in his affidavit to, to judge Morris. He says the, this is after the Mormons have now convinced the, um, the Arkansas company, the Fancher party to load up in wagons and, and that the Mormons were going to escort them to safety. Okay. So this is what he says happened. The company moved out from their camp the wounded and as many of the women and children as could ride were in the wagons with the rest of the women and children walking close behind while the men were walking some little distance behind with the white settlers walking alongside of them the immigrant men being unarmed while the settlers had their arms when the company had reached the divide where the waters separate, uh, part going down towards the Clara Creek and the other part going towards the meadow and on towards the desert, John N. Higby gave the agreed signal, halt. When the Indians who were in ambush rushed in between the white settlers and the immigrant men, and began the killing of the men, and the white settlers assisted. And the Indians assisted by John D. Lee killed in the wounded and the women and children, except the little children. I saw John D. Lee kill some of the women and children, for I was in a position to see, and did see it all. I was immediately sent with four men to prevent the Indians from looting the wagons. But when I got there... I would not do so, for I let them do as they pleased. I was told at the time that when they rested from the killing and I had gone to the wagons, that they gathered the children together and Klingensmith selected 17 of the smallest children together and handed the older ones over to the Indians who killed them. Well, that made my blood run cold. For starters, we know that white men did the killing. From Forrest Kutch to Will Bagley to any other reputable historian, we know 
that few Indians participated in this massacre. And that's one of the things that I wanted to point out because I published uh, last week a an old episode I recorded on Mountain Meadows where I, you know, I was just getting into the history, didn't know that much, and I go with old documents that say that it could have been a few Indians. And I've since corrected that, but that that's an important thing because there's not just the fact that it was a cover-up, but the racial implications that it's okay to throw Native Americans under the bus as they as they are somehow more savage than white people. Yeah, and you know, Lindsay, I I, I still as I re- read that earlier this morning to make sure I wanted to include it, and just as I read it again, I, I it I don't. I, I'm not even sure how to express my feelings, except these were white men who turned over those little children to um, white men dressed as Indians. And they went out and they murdered those little children. I mean, they murdered little children in the wagons, but the ones that were left over, they then just took them. I mean, it's one thing to have that mentality. It's one thing to all have that rush and you just, you know, you start killing, the firing starts going on. You know, we've heard about, we've read, you know, reports and people who uh, were in these kinds of, you know, civil war things or uh, World War One, World War Two, different things like that. And when the killing is going on, you know, there's a different thing. There's adrenaline. There's all kinds of things going on. But then, after the killing's done, they separate out those little children and they take them over and they then murder them. They, 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 and they, the forensic evidence suggests that it was done with the butts of guns. Um, they would crash the skulls in of the little children. Um, because it was easy just to take a gun and do that. Uh, the, the savagery of these men is, is to me, incomprehensible. Um, one but, of but the, this isn't the only, the only massacre, right? This is the most well-known one. But I want you to talk about some of the other massacres that come in. And, and I want to also talk about something that really sort of upsets me greatly. Um, and this is the hierarchy that we place on deaths. If it's white settlers, it becomes this huge, you know, sad thing. But Mormons were killing Indians often. The government, the government was killing Indians often. And I think I'd even heard something about, uh, at one point, the Smithsonian at the time was asking for people to send in um, skulls of Native Americans to the Smithsonian for a price so they could study their schools. I mean, this was a horrible time for, you know, to be a Native American, but because it was so common, it wasn't really um, valued at all. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, you're right. We, uh, I'm just going to read one last thing about, this is actually one of the pieces of new evidence that Will Bagley talks about, about Mountain Meadows. And it's uh, in the Francis Lyman diaries, which actually have never been made available. It's an excerpt. And I can't remember how that ex- it may have gotten through during the Arrington year. So, so that's the only reason we have this one excerpt is, um, but 
but Lyman writes down, he, he goes to Southern Utah in 1895 and he interviews, he interviews a lot of different people. Again, Nephi Johnson, uh, this, these are his words. These are Nephi Johnson's words. He says, I, I talked with those two about the Mountain Meadows Massacre, meaning Levitt and Johnson. The first gave me but little information, but Johnson was the man who gave the word to the Indians to fire at the last general killing. He denies that Higby and White did most of the killing that Adair, Adele, Adair tells of. He says white men did most of the killing. So, you know, right there, you've got um, one of the highest church leaders doing an interview, and uh, Nephi Johnson admits. Okay, so you're right. There, There's a, um, a great book that I actually did a review on um, called uh, Violent Encounters, and Will Bagley does a chapter which is about – it's more of an interview type of, of, uh, of chapters – and the authors or editors uh, do these interviews with scholars throughout the country. And Will Bagley's one of them, and he talks about Mountain Meadows. But each of the other uh, authors talk about massacres, and most of the massacres they discuss are massacres of white men massacring Indians. There's the famous one of the Cheyenne um, being murdered in uh, – Colorado. It's the Sand Creek Massacre. And this was uh, in um, uh, committed by um, members of the Methodist Church. The massacre itself was done in uh, November 1864. And the Indians that were murdered were uh, anywhere from seventy to one hundred and sixty-three. So it it was a it was a horrific, horrific massacre. The most of the of the Cheyenne that were there were uh, women and children, um, and that was you know, and that happens over and over and over again. Uh, a Mormon tie-in would be, um, and this is found in. Todd Compton's excellent article about uh, Jacob Hamblin in his experiences in Tooele. And I'm pretty sure it was the Paiutes who uh, they believed, or maybe it was the Utes, maybe it was the Utes, who were stealing uh, Mormon cattle. And so uh, there was lots of discussion of what to do. And McBride, uh, who was the commanding Nauvoo Legion commanding officer. Now, this is well before um, the Utah War, uh, Mount Meadows, all that. Um, and so McBride sends a letter to um, Daniel Wells, who's the commanding officer of the Nauvoo Legion, and you know, saying maybe you can send us. Um, some poison, um, I believe he says arsenic. And uh, Daniel Wells's response is, well, well, you don't have arsenic, but I'm sending you something better. So he, he sent him another poison, and he told him, you know, to take care of the Indians. Now, the, the Mormons also did uh, round up Indians, and in and, and Todd's excellent article, he talks about that um, the, the Indians that the Mormons rounded up were were probably not even the same Indians that had been doing any because they were Paiutes and they, 
you know, they didn't have the skills. They didn't have horses. They didn't have anything to really be able to steal these horses and cattle that, that the Mormons um, were upset over. But they rounded these Indians up. They took them out right there out of Twila, and they lined them up. And uh, Orrin Porter Rockwell, uh, along with his buddies, um, murdered all of those Indians um, without any evidence that any of those Indians had been involved in any. And it's one, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, even just to kill these Indians, but then, you know, actually taking and uh, um, and gathering up innocent uh, people is a whole nother. Uh, level of of atrocity, um, which reminds me that John C. Fremont did the a very same thing. I believe it was in Oregon Territory where some Indians had uh, killed some U.S. soldiers, and so he sent Kit Carson. Fremont sent Kit Carson and a band to kill a bunch of Indians, and and again. No evidence that any of those Indians had anything to do with what Fremont was trying to kill. You know, and we got cities in California. You know, we got a city, we got streets, we got all this stuff named after John C. Fremont. Uh, he was a cold-blooded murderer in so many ways, just like uh, uh, Orrin Porter Rockwell. So I have a question. We talk about, in the last episode, you talk about Joseph Smith and how he sort of makes this charge in the Council of 50 where really Mormons should kill off everyone except for Jews, Indians, and Mormons. And in this way, what he does is he sort of makes Gentiles almost on a lower peg than Native Americans. Now, that doesn't play out in the West. They certainly right, exactly. have the, the larger attitude. It's so weird, attitude. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's this, this dehumanizing, this othering of people that sort of justifies this killing. Yeah, it, 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 you're trying to wrap your brain around, you know, first of all, Brigham Young and Joe Smith are in Nauvoo saying how, yeah, we're going we're gonna to organize the Indians. You know, we're going to have th- hundreds of thousands of these people coming to us, and, and we're going to give them, you know, the gospel. And then, uh, you know, again, as, as Bill McKinnon shows in its sword point, this militaristic of killing Gentiles, um, we've got Brigham Young and, and Daniel Wells and these different people giving orders to kill the Indians because the theory didn't work as well as what they thought it would, and so now it's okay to kill the Indians. You know, it just it, it it's so disturbing on so many levels as you go through it. The the you wanted me to just talk about and there's unfortunately there's not a lot of Mormon connection that I've been able to find. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't. That just means I can't find any. Um, is but we do know with the Bear River massacre, which was the largest massacre, anywhere from two hundred and fifty to three hundred and fifty um, Indian Shoshone Indians were murdered at Bear River by uh, Colonel Patrick uh, Connor and his company. but no. And, and I had let, understood that it was not a Mormon massacre, that it was just the government against these, but you had said there is some Mormon Well, connection. there's a Mormon connection, and um, 
you know, no, no less than our buddy um, Porter Rockwell was the the man who led the um, Connors Company to the site. Matter of fact, here's what what Will Bagley writes in Blood of the Prophets. This is this is he says it so much better. Despite their mutual hostility. The Mormons and the military collaborated on the largest massacre of American Indians in the history of the West. Perhaps hoping for a Shoshone victory, Porter Rockwell guided Connor's men to Bear River, where the soldiers attacked Bear Hunter's entrenched band at dawn on January 29, 1863. Um have you ever seen the movie A Little Big Man with Dustin Hoffman? No. Oh, uh, it's a great movie, and I, I highly recommend it. But there's a massacre that uh, uh, Custer actually does, and and I uh, it's where um, Custer's and his men are, and and that's actually a real uh, massacre also that was done, I believe, in the the Dakota territories or right. In Minnesota, one or the other it was right there, and um, and they also killed men, women, and children. If you see that movie and you see that scene, that gives you an insight of what Connor and his men, led by Porter Rockwell, um, I mean, will even you know writes later that that there seems to have been, even though they were enemies, and even though they never met that there seemed to be this mutual respect between Connor and Young. It was sort of like this weird kind of a thing going on between the two. So that's the largest. And that, you know, and 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 as far as, you know, and Will, like I say, Will is a tenacious researcher, and that's the only connection he was also able to find. So the let's go back, you know, we're going to jump sort of back now to what was going on during the Utah war. Cause that's when a lot of the, the murders that young, and again, you know, these were men who were coming into Utah territory. You gotta wonder, I mean, you know, there's no, no statements that I could find, but you know, with all this rhetoric about, you know, and as you, you know, you did that podcast on Steptoe, you know, this, this idea that these men, these single men coming into Utah territory, it's all these groups of them who are being murdered. Now there's also, you know, there's the Tobin attack that again, Porter Rockwell being the guy who's in charge of that goes down. But that, that was a mistake of identity in the sense that, that Rockwell messed up. He, Brigham Young had given orders to kill two men who had had been released from uh, Utah Penitentiary, can't think of their names right off the top of my head. But anyway, Betts, yeah, Betts, and and another guy. So there was mistaken identity, and and Rockwell goes in, and they start shooting and and uh, mutilate. They don't kill anybody, but they they really make these guys have wounds for the rest of their life. So, and if you're leaving Utah, that's another thing. If you're leaving Utah, like the Parish Porter situation down in Springville. You know, when you're leaving Utah, you 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 know you are likely to be killed. So you know, and that's again, if you're taking women too, you know, not a good thing. 
but but getting back to the ones that that um, I, we've got the most detail on, well, actually, we got good detail on those others. But is uh, you and I talked about Richard Yates before? He was a trader and mountaineer, and he had uh, had munitions that Brigham Young ordered seized. Uh, matter of fact, Young wanted all of his supplies seized. This was in the beginning of the Utah War. The U.S. troops had not even made it into Utah Territory. They were still out on the plains. And Yates wanted to sell his supplies to the U.S. Army. Young wanted to seize them. He was trying to get all the munitions he could from everywhere. He was, he was giving orders for people to bring munitions with them when they were returning from California and, and from parts east. So it was, you know, this was a big deal. So Yates was able to avoid this and actually did sell his munitions to the U.S. Army. And he was also able to avoid capture. Well, he finally was captured. Yates was finally captured by the, by the Nauvoo Legion. And Wells, Taylor, and Smith, George A. Smith, well, Daniel Wells, John Taylor, and George A. Smith turned Yates over to Hickman. The night that Hickman had him, he had Yates in chains, and Hickman picked up an axe and walked over and split Yates's head wide open all the way in and split his brains open and killed him. He then buried him under the cold ashes from that night's fire. Hickman, first thing he did when he got back to Salt Lake, was take the money that he had taken from Yates, which was $1,000 in gold, which also happens to be the exact same amount that was reported that the U.S. Army had paid Yates. And he turned that over to Young. Young was only concerned about the money, not anything to do with the fact that, that Hickman had killed Yates. There was, you know, and, and anybody who claims that that Young wanted a distance. Why Why did he keep him right there constantly? Until Hickman turned Mormon traitor by exposing what he had done, he was always in the graces of Brigham Young. So the Aiken party, this was six men who were traveling from Southern California through Utah Territory. They Once they got into Utah Territory, they were afraid because they were such a small group they were afraid of Indians attacking them. They'd been told by a merchant there in uh, uh, Genoa, Nevada, which was a Mormon station at the time, that uh, a wagon train heading of Mormons heading back to Utah had already left, and so they caught up with them. The Mormons, um, which probably had a legitimate reason, were suspicious of these six, six men and they promised them safe passage in the Mormons promised the six men, um, back to Utah. Um, and that they would escort them to in the territory they wanted to go. Uh, but they had to turn over all of their weapons. Uh, the men obviously didn't want to do that. Um, and that's a familiar story we have down in uh, Mount Meadows of the same kind of thing going on. 
the uh, the men finally agreed to it, um, fearing for their safety, um, not traveling, and uh, so they turned over their weapons. And when they got to Utah, they were immediately turned over to Nauvoo Legion and um, through different events, um, with, along with Brigham Young, each of those men were murdered. Um, and, and that, you know, we'll, we can post that article, that full article. Um, something that's interesting, just a juxtaposition Something I think that's interesting is that one of the people that was traveling, and and it ties in it it ties in in a way with the Aiken party because the Aiken party was going to they were traveling they were wealthy because they had all this money and and wealth they were taking to the U.S. Army to start a gaming, um, gambling and any of the other things that the, the U.S. Army would do. And, and the, these people would then follow the U.S. Army, meaning the Aiken Party, along with other people, would have done this. Well, what's interesting is a man named William Contrell happened to also be a part of these kinds of people that traveled with the U.S. Army coming from Kansas to Utah Territory. Quentrell is notorious because he was he was um, a guerrilla during the Civil War, and he he attacked uh, Lawrence, Kansas. There's a famous thing where he murdered people all over there. He he would go throughout that whole area and murder people. Um, he was reckless. Clearly, he was reckless. He he died at the age of 27. Uh, during the Civil War, during a battle in Texas, the, the uh, Union soldiers shot him and then took him, uh, they took him to a, a Union hospital and he died of his injuries. Um, so, you know, this, this whole violence is, is interesting um, and how these people have these layers. What's interesting also, though, is that Hickman and, and Rockwell and we're going to talk a second about Ephraim Hanks. These guys all lived to much older. They all had wives. They all had children. And is um, and I love what David Bigler says. Is you know when people say, "Well, the West was violent," and David Bigler says, "Cedar City was not Dodge City," and the opposite. The, yes, the West was was violent, but there was order. I, I I can't remember the laws in Cedar City, but there was like you couldn't you couldn't say a profane word or you couldn't throw something on the ground. I mean, you know, there were you know the, the churches. Everybody went to church. Everything was closed down on Sunday. You know, these people had wives. They had uh, families. Um, you know, we're not so. Yes, there's overlap, and they were wild people. But Mormonism is a religion, and to suggest that somehow it's okay that just because there's a William Quintrell from Missouri 
who then is a guerrilla during the Civil War and is a mass murderer, that that's okay to make Hickman and make Rockwell okay, you know, for the crimes that they committed or John D. Lee down at Mountain Meadows um, and all under the umbrella of Brigham Young. Um, so anyway, that I just think that's a very interesting sidelight with with Quintrell, but also how the difference the di- and the difference is staggering. I found an interesting thing and in, about Ephraim Hanks with Mike Quinn. He writes this in Extensions of Power. This is in his chronology. He said, Brigham Young preaches to hang a man for such a deed would not begin to satisfy my feelings. He speaks of discovery that uh, Jean Baptiste has been robbing Mormon graves in Salt Lake City for four years, stripping clothes and valuables from corpses. Judge Elias Smith writes that the people would have torn him to pieces. Young recommends banishment of Baptiste to a deserted island in the Great Salt Lake. On 4th of August, Church Historian's Office notes that punishment including, included cutting off his ears and branding his forehead with words grave robber, but that he had disappeared from the island. 32 years later, a skeleton is found with ball and chain attached to the leg bone and with a decapitated skull lying several feet away. Salt Lake Herald claims that this is the grave robber's remains, which Deseret News denies. So wait, just back up. So a man's robbing graves, and what are we to expect that they behead him? They arrest him and then behead him? They arrest him, they brand him, they cut off his ears, they banish him to that island, to what is, what did I say, Antelope Island? Antelope Island, I think. And, and that's that's that island out there, right? Isn't it called Antelope Island? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yep. And he's on ball and chain. Yeah, he's ball and chain. Just for robbing graves? Yeah. Yeah, well, it, yeah, there's, you know, we got other stories too, but yeah. Yeah. So, and then the best part is, is that Young's Nephi, and Young's, I'm sorry, Young's nephew later writes that Ephraim Hanks killed Batiste. So... It was Ephraim Hanks, another Bihoy, who went and cut his head off. And you now, know what? Now, I don't want to suggest, like, I've been tying this into polygamy because that is the topic, but I don't, I think it'd be really reductive to say that this is all tied into polygamy because I certainly don't think so. I think violence is not just a polygamous, polygamous phenomenon, but I do think that this insider-outsider thing is a huge justification for these killings and certainly polygamy does help crystallize that identity but what else would you think what other factors do you think is contributing to all of these murders well you know i mean again i'm not sure how you know it would again you're as you say it would be conjecture but thomas coleman and and i think batiste was black as well but thomas coleman i know was black and he was a freed slave. If I can, you know, it's been a while since I've, I've studied everything on him, but I'm pretty sure he was a free black. So he had uh, been accused of practicing polygamy, 
um, that he seemed to enjoy uh, the company of white women. Now, again, uh, it, you know, the records on that whole thing's pretty sketchy because he's a black man. But there, there's a newspaper article that was written by a man who, who went by the name Achilles. And it's, it's about, and it was 1878. He wrote the story of Oren Porter Rockwell. And, and Rockwell, they found this man up by the temple, this black man, Thomas Coleman. They found him up by the temple. And he had his head also uh, basically detached. There was, I believe there was like a piece of muscle or something that at least still allowed his head to remain on his body. But for the most part, they also, uh, you know, there was a whole cover up on the thing because um, uh, they said, oh, you know, this was just a, a robbery or whatever, a last minute thing. And, and it clearly was planned out because the grave, and this is in December or January, I can't remember when exactly it was, but the ground was froze and a grave was actually dug for him. So there had to have been the whole process of thinking this out to be able to commit that crime. So in effect, Achilles said that Rockwell cut his throat from ear to ear using Tom's own knife. So... And then, and then there was a, a note under his body said, warning to all Negroes um, of not to uh, be with uh, white women. So, yeah, we so, talked you know, about that on our Color Heaven this, podcast. Um, they pin it to his skin. There's just, and, and I want to point out this racial dynamic that we see this happening in America for a long time that what would be seen as probably a normal interaction or maybe no interaction at all. Sometimes black men were accused of even looking at a white woman wrong would end up in their death. So it doesn't necessarily mean that Thomas Coleman was even guilty of what he was accused for. And again, let's say he was, it, it would never warrant it yeah. death, yeah. right? Yeah, but this is did, yeah. the racist yeah. tone that we're dealing with. And it That's, has to do with this idea of outsiders touching Mormon women. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Can we, I mean, maybe you could go on, but maybe do you mind if we do the, the Jeff Lundgren thing real quick and then you can, then yeah. Cause I know there were a couple things you wanted to finish up. on. Yep. Just go ahead and give us, let's bump into the modern era. I don't want to waste a ton of time doing violence too many episodes. So yeah, give us some of the modern stuff. Well, actually it's just going to be this Jeff Lundgren and then I've got to run. So, okay. So jumping into modern time, I, I'm, you know, I mean, there's so much we could talk about from the past, but let's, let's just jump into the modern. I, I something that, and I remember Bill Russell, he gave a, a talk at Sunstone back in 1993. It was a pillars of my faith uh, talk. And he talks about Jeff Lundgren and Lundgren was what you would call a fundamentalist re, uh, reorganized church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint member. He lived in, in Independence, Missouri. He um, was a, a medical supply person, I believe. He was a salesperson. He'd go around and sell. And, but what his claim to fame was, he was the Sunday school teacher in his branch there in, in Independence, uh, which is similar to a ward for the Salt Lake Church. 
And so he was a, he was the Sunday school teacher. And I guess he was an overly enthusiastic Sunday school teacher that would give controversial uh, lessons. He was also quite critical of the modern uh, leadership. Uh, these were, you know, like uh, Wallace Smith is a good example, who um, is, he was an academically trained uh, eye surgeon, um, ophthalmologist, and then he then uh, went actually to the Kansas City Theological uh, School. I, I can't remember who runs it now. But he was trained there, and so, so many of the leaders of the reorganized church at the time, which is now the Community of Christ, they, uh, they were uh, academically trained in religion. Uh, they, they were familiar with critical analysis of the Bible, and, and they took that into the Book of Mormon, and and they you know uh, Wallace Smith you know continued to receive revelation. Matter of fact, he had at least one I know, and possibly two re- uh, revelations that were canonized and that are in the current Community of Christ Doctrine and Covenants. So Lundgren was was extremely critical of, of this movement to modernization and. He received a revelation. He actually received many revelations. He had Jesus appear to him. He uh, had gold plates um, that appeared to him that, that Wallace Smith couldn't translate. He claimed uh, he, that he was to be the one that would uh, translate them. The, many, many revelations and, and visions. And one of these visions was to move to Kirtland. Uh, he actually, when he read the Doctrine and Covenant section to Joe Smith, you know, that, that – uh, I call my people to the Ohio. And so uh, God was speaking to Jeff Lundgren, telling him he should do this. And so he became a really good, oh, I guess a favorite actually, among tourists through the uh, Kirtland Temple. And he, when he got hired to do the tours, he lied and said that he, his money to live off and support his family there in Kirtland was from an inheritance, but he actually got money from the uh, peop- the tourist, and he did uh, he embezzled money from their bookstore, and he em- he embezzled funds from the donations that were received by the temple. So, Lundgren's two uh, or favorite story in the Book of Mormon is Nephi beheading Laban. Uh, with those passages, behold, the Lord, Lord slayeth the wicked to bring forth his righteous purposes. It is better that one man should perish than a nation should perish or dwindle and perish in unbelief. So, so Lundgren took this all seriously, and he ended up murdering an entire family, a family that had children from their early teens to I think the youngest was like six years old. And he put bullet. He it, sometimes, uh, at least with the children we know, he had to put two bullets into their heads to kill them. Uh, one child in testimony, um, I think it was like the twelve or thirteen year old girl, um, and oh, and and these were these children were bound and gagged as he was doing this, and um, and one of the followers was outside the barn with a chainsaw, uh, running a chainsaw so that the the screams of the family and the shooting of the gun 
would not be heard by people. So he, but one of the little girls, uh, she said, oh, is, is she was hit with the first bullet. And then he shot her with the second bullet and killed her. They moved, he and his, his uh, followers then moved to uh, Virginia, the woods of Virginia, and uh, lived off the, basically lived off the land, uh, but didn't do so well because it's awfully cold in Virginia in the winter. And so they decided to head back to Missouri. Just an, an interesting thing that I found out this morning is uh, while Lundgren was in the hills of Virginia, he decided to take a plural wife. And we all know that there are LDS have always been opposed to plural marriage, and the community Christ continues to this day. But Lund Lundgren seems to find a way for himself to take on a plural wife. It was actually the plural wife's husband, real legal husband, who turned in the group to authorities and they were finally arrested. And Lundgren, I believe is, I don't think he's, you know, I, I didn't look that up, but um, I think Lundgren's still on death row in Ohio. So yeah, this all ties back in together. Well, Joe, I know you have to go, so I you can hop off and I'll and I'll cover the last little bit really quickly. But I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this kind of dark subject. Yeah, it, it is. Um, and so, if, you know, hopefully uh, we've dealt with it in a appropriate way. And and Lindsay, you're always amazing. So thank you. Well, and send me those links, and we'll make sure we link those too on the episode. Oh, one, one little thing about this Jeff Lundgren thing. If, if people want to learn about Jeff Lundgren and this whole thing, um, it, they need to get David Hallett's book called The Kirtland Temple. Now, obviously, David's book, I think, only has like a chapter and a half or two that deal with Lundgren. But if you want to know all about The Kirtland Temple, David's book is amazing. Or if you want to specifically learn about Lundgren also, that's that's the way to do it with David Hallett's book. Okay. Thanks, well, Lindsay. Thanks again, Joe. Okay, so we don't have a lot of time, and I just wanted to cover a few modern violent murders that have the intersection of Mormonism. And the other intersection that I want to point out is it seems that many of these, these um, murders have some sort of tie in with sexuality, whether it's the threat of Mormon women or even Mountain Meadows, where it's this idea that Parley P. Pratt, who was married to um, a plural wife and murdered by that woman's legal husband, um, and that's the justification for killing everyone in Mountain Meadows, there always seems to be this strange sort of tie with Mormon sexuality. And as we just saw with uh, Jeffrey Lundgren, that is certainly the case, too. I want to talk about a few others that I think that tie into that, too. Now, of course, there is the Lafferty brothers, which we have talked about before. Um, now, the Lafferty brothers were mentioned in Under the Banner of Heaven. They um, murdered Brenda and Erica, uh, who were at the time Lafferty, but that's their family does not want to use that last name anymore because of the fact that her former husband murdered her and her daughters. She was, Brenda was not supportive of her husband's leaning towards plural marriage. And of course, 
she gets brutally murdered by her husband and his brothers, the Lafferty brothers. We talk about that. This happens recently. This happens in 1984. And that's that's pretty modern. We also have the case of Matthew Shepard. Now, anyone that knows about Matthew Shepard, he was um, a gay kid in Wyoming that was brutally murdered. One of his perpetrators was a Mormon boy uh, raised by very strict LDS grandparents. Um, His biases obviously factored into that. And of course, this ties into sexuality too, trying to control and to um, police and shame someone's sexuality. I won't get into that too much. We just we just kind of have to go through these very quickly. The LeBarons that I talked about in an earlier podcast, they come out of a polygamous group down in Mexico. They end up trying to put a hit on all of the polygamous prophets, and they end up murdering Rulin Allred from the AUB, the prophet of the AUB group. They send some of their followers into his dental practice in Murray and shoot him dead. They actually had a, a hit on Spencer W. Kimball, and you can go back and listen to these episodes in more detail. We, of course, have Mark Hoffman. Now, I would say, as far as I'm aware, there's not a sexual connection there. Mark Hoffman's had to do more with covering up his crimes. At least that seems like his motivation. But his was certainly, um, he was trying to forge documents, early Mormon documents, that would implicate Joseph Smith as sort of this bad guy. And to cover it up, he killed some of his former friends in a, in a very brutal and violent way. We also have Jody Arias. Um, I'm sure that many of you know this story. It's it's probably the most recent that I know of. You know, Jody Arias murders uh, Travis Alexander in 2008. She was his ex-girlfriend, and there's all these rumors swirling about blood atonement and jealousy and sexual jealousy and things like that, and um, their Mormon connections are really interesting, too. Of course, Alexander, who was killed in 2008, when his body was discovered there was something like 27 to 29 stab wounds and his throat had been slit in a way um they it, it actually cut his jugular vein in a way that was very reminiscent of blood atonement and that was some of the justification for the murders and of course there are other stories like mark hacking who uh, murdered his wife his pregnant wife Lori hacking um, they were Mormon, and uh, his was said to be some sort of cover up for his lies that he had been that had been mounting about his background and about his education that that uh, never really added up. And so again, I'm not trying to say that these motives are specifically Mormon; they are not tied to polygamy. But I do think that there is a very Mormon way in in the way that sometimes these killings and deaths are justified and um, played out. And that can't be ignored. Certainly, again, I want to say it again, violence is not specific to Mormonism. But whenever I hear people say, oh, Islam is a violent religion or or something like that, I think, well, you know, Mormonism has a pretty violent history itself. And the only difference is, is we're a lot younger. And so when you have scriptures like Nephi being able to cut off Laban's head, Laban's head for the greater good, and all of these violent passages in the Book of Mormon with war that justifies cutting people's arms off and, and killing you know entire groups of people, what it can do is enable people that maybe have you know these violent tendencies or maybe these dispositions that um, might 
help them to justify their violence. And so that's what I want to point out. And I do think that there's an interesting intersection with Mormon sexuality and violence. And I, and I hope that that's explored more. If there's a massacre or a violent act in Mormonism that we have left out and that you would like to see mentioned, please leave it in the comment section. And again, thank you for listening to this, you know, sort of brutal last few episodes. And we're going to move on to some, some better stories, but I thought that this was worth exploring. So thanks again for listening. to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.